The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today there was a ribbon cutting in Ghana, a ribbon cutting for a new road that was Again, normally not huge news. We don't tend to cover bridge openings and and road openings. This happens quite frequently. But in Ghana, it's especially interesting because this particular road was part of the $2 billion bauxite for infrastructure deal that we covered a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019 when that deal was first signed. Now, since then, it has been hugely controversial. There's been a lot of frustration on the part of civil society, environmentalists, if you recall, were concerned about the bauxite extraction. And they were also concerned that the pace of development for this these road buildings and these construction projects was not happening fast enough. Well, Vice President Mamadou Baoumiya, he commissioned some of the inner city road projects in the Cape Coast. And these roads, again, are only a portion of what they are building throughout the country. Let's take a listen to some of his remarks that he made at the road opening and the commissioning service, and he was joined by officials from the Chinese embassy along with officials from Sino-Hydro. Today marks yet another day of the commissioning of yet another Sino-Hydro project, Feely Feely. Unfortunately for some of our opponents, when we say something and they don't understand, instead of asking for an explanation and also reading about it, they don't like to read, they don't want to ask for explanation, they just say, you are lying. But today, as we commissioned Omoye, they are silent. They are no longer saying it's not possible. A total of 441 kilometers of roads and two interchanges are to be constructed. The objectives of the projects are to enhance intra-urban, regional, and national traffic flow, trade, and strengthen regional economic integration. I was privileged to perform the sword cutting for this important project on 21st November 2019. The commencement of the project was on 20th December 2019 for completion in 30 months. The project was duly completed on schedule. So, Kobus, two very important takeaways from the vice president's comments there. Number one, the message to his opponents, suck it. (laughs) He was just brutal. Okay, because this particular issue has been a major point of contention against the government. Last year, this came up in Parliament. It came up in the media. It was dominating for several months. They said at the time, only $100 million out of the $2 billion had been released for infrastructure projects, undermining really this questioning of whether or not the government is going to fulfill its promises on building new infrastructure and building roads in particular. So there we go. Promises made, promises delivered. Let's not forget we're going into a political season in Ghana as well. Other very important takeaway message, okay, was that this project was completed within a single electoral cycle within the presidency, okay? This is a very important message here, and we can talk about this later with regards to the United States, but this point that he made that it was done in 13 months. And remember, Kobus, when we spoke with a Ghanaian finance ministry official about the deal to begin with, he said that from the first negotiation to the first shovel in the ground was 18 months. Okay, so basically 31 months from the start of the negotiation until a road is finished and he is gleefully using 
giant scissors to open the new road and do the ribbon cutting. So that is a very important aspect of Chinese infrastructure development in Africa is the speed they do it, which allows an administration to run on the infrastructure that was built under their term. You did some analysis on this week for our subscribers in the newsletter. What was your take? The event is a, re- is a really interesting kind of, you know, confirmation of this broader trend that one sees in literature that frequently, unlike, the, you know, I think predictions made frequently by Western West, Western observers, that is that democracies in Africa frequently like to work with the Chinese maybe even more than autocracies because it you know it allows them to to have this this infrastructure that they can then unveil before the next election cycle and the fact that all of this is happening so quickly and so efficiently um, or relatively efficiently then is you know is an indication of, of why that is so um, you know and of course all of this is happening as the Ghanaian government wants some good news uh, to you know to, to broadcast because because the Ghanaian economy has suffered some real real tough times you know over the last few months um and you know it's, it's one of one of these countries that has frequently name check as a possible future debt problem so you know so so it'll be interesting to see what kind of political dividends they get um and it'll then also be interesting to see you know or to hear more about what's happening with the environmental impact of, of the bauxite mining in in because it's, it's supposed to be happening in in this protected forest area and there's been a lot of criticism about possible environmental impacts and water impacts um, on local communities so it'll be interesting to hear what's happening there. So nobody's talking about that part. So again, this bauxite deal is being done in the Atiwa National Forest, which was until recently, until this deal, a protected forest area. And they, they say, environmentalists say, that the water supply for up to 5 million people could be impacted by the mining. Now, this issue of water is another important aspect of all of this, because over the past several weeks, there's been a massive controversy in Ghana over the rearrest of Aisha Wong, who's known as the Galamse Queen. And the government has come under enormous criticism, in part because this Galamse issue, which is the illegal mining issue, was one of the key platforms that the president ran on. And he said, I'm going to bring the illegal mining issue under control. And then Aisha Wong, who was deported back in December 2018, and then reappeared this year, well, that's causing a lot of uh, a lot of issues. So that's a little bit of the context for the vice president's kind of tough tone that he took. Also, one interesting side note to all of this is the burgeoning dispute between the Ghanaian Finance Ministry and the International Monetary Fund over whether the $2 billion bauxite for infrastructure deal that was done with Sinohydro should be added to the country's debt stock. Now, the government says it shouldn't because it's a barter deal, but the IMF wants to count it because it's really akin to a financial obligation all the same. The the government is on the hook to provide this, so it's almost like having a bond or taking a loan. Now, this is very important because the $2 billion that makes up this resource for infrastructure deal could move the country's debt-to-GDP ratio up 2% to 80%. And as Kobus pointed out, Ghana is is really in many ways at the leading edge now of, of African countries facing the financial abyss. The currency, the SETI, has been under tremendous pressure. The debt stock has been surging. The economy is facing real headwinds right now, and there's a lot of concern. So whether or not 78% or 80% is the debt-to-GDP ratio can make a very big difference. Uh, very quickly, Ghana's total national debt right now stands at $38 billion. China accounts for about $3.5 billion of that, so just under 10%. But now let's pull back the focus a little bit to look more broadly at what's going on across the continent about some of the key China-Africa issues. And for that, we are thrilled to have on the show for the first time Nosmot Baramosi, who joins us from Lagos. A very good afternoon to you, Nosmot. Good afternoon. I'm really glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Nos is a multimedia journalist who has an extensive background reporting on African art, travel, culture, and a whole lot of politics, which is why we're thrilled to have her here today. For those of you who subscribe to Foreign Policy in the U.S., you may be familiar with Nos's work as she's the author of the absolutely indispensable Africa Brief newsletter that comes out every week. 
And in her work for foreign policy, Nos looks across the continent to synthesize the key stories of the week. And not surprisingly, China comes up a lot in her coverage. So we're thrilled to have Nos on the on the line today to help give us some perspective on some of the stories that she's been covering. Nos, let's start with infrastructure and the situation in Ghana. And in your latest edition of the Africa Brief, you talked about how West African countries have failed to invest in what you call preventive infrastructure. So let's start there. What is preventive infrastructure and why is it so important? I think it's, you know, it's really looking at, for example, in Nigeria, the drainage systems, the the, the kind of the some of the things that Ghana is doing, good road networks, things that just make a country run smoothly, not only run smoothly, but prevent, you know, for example, what's happening in Nigeria at the moment with the floods. A lot of the the, the heavy rainfall and, and the floods that have happened as a result of that could have been prevented by having good working drainage systems and also making sure that you are planning your towns and cities properly. You know, Ghana is trying to do that with some of the loans that it has taken out. So making sure that, you know, people aren't just building because you've left everything to civilians to do. You're you're providing what a state should provide in terms of proper infrastructure planning, proper housing planning, road planning, and uh, flood defences. So, you know, kind of, you mentioned the floods in, in Nigeria. We're also obviously still, still looking at the, the aftermath of floods in Pakistan, you know, which, which are widely, I think, acknowledged to, to have had a, a, a major kind of climate component as well. What kind of, you know, adaptation and mitigation are we, are we looking at for African countries in order to become more climate resilient? Like what kind of infrastructure are they going to have to focus on in order to, to not have every, you know, kind of every climate incident also become a massive disaster? I think it's really um, getting a grip with how urbanisation is happening and how the movement of people is happening and making sure that you are preemptively planning for that and um, providing the infrastructure that works for that. Obviously, as in uh, Accra in Lagos, a lot of the, the kind of people flow is towards those areas and they are kind of um, uh, coastal areas. So they are prone to to flooding, uh, making sure that, you know, people are not building informal set- settlements and you are actually building houses uh, for the people, building hospitals for the people, uh, making sure that the, the drainage systems that those informal settlements have work properly, which obviously at the moment they do not do. Lagos, for example, is one of the, um, it's predicted to be the worst affected by some of the climate change impacts. And that means, you know, a lot of the buildings in Lagos need to have and be built with proper uh, flood defences mitigated in and that hasn't really been happening and that is down to state failure the same way that it is it has largely been with Pakistan as well but if you talk to the supporters of Nigerian president Mohamedou Buhari they will tell you that he has done more for infrastructure especially working with the chinese than his predecessors have and that a lot of progress has been made under his administration so he's built new railways there have been new airports that have been built. There's the new Lekki port that is coming online. So massive infrastructure investments with the Chinese. The problem is, though, is that the Chinese now are backing away from financing Nigerian infrastructure. About $15 billion, maybe $16 billion was approved by the Senate. These were loans that were initially negotiated with the China Exim Bank. And then Beijing stopped answering the phone from Nigerians and said, you know what, we're just not going to go anywhere. And I remember... Uh, former transportation minister Rotimi Amechi kept saying, well, we're trying to get in touch with the Chinese. We're trying to find out what's going on about these loans. So the question now is, if the Chinese are out of the game of financing large-scale transportation infrastructure, this preventive infrastructure that you talk about, 
and the bond markets now are very expensive to borrow money, where does a country like Nigeria go to finance its infrastructure? There's been a lot of talk about, you know, having more regional um, financial institutions that can sort of pick up the pace and provide the types of funding that a lot of African governments need. Um, Really, there is only the African Development Bank. There's not that many um, sort of regional institutions that, that, that can do that. And that does need to change. But for that to happen, ironically, that also means that a a lot of the governments then need to work together and and also pull their own resources to to facilitate institutions that can do that. But that really isn't happening at the moment. I know that it is something that, you know, a lot of experts tell me is is an issue and, and something that, you know, African governments have to actually um, think about addressing because you cannot keep relying on China, the US and a few other countries who have their own sort of geopolitical reasons for, for, for doing things. You cannot keep relying on them to kind of finance these these infrastructure developments. You, you have to come up with a way that there is some kind of regional um, uh, financial institution that can do that, that isn't just relying on the African Development Bank. One of the issues in you know across across both this this um, the issue of development and dealing with with all of these climate challenges is infrastructure and then particularly lending for infrastructure and you know over the last year and a half or so we've seen this kind of mounting not only a mounting actual debt crisis but also a lot of a lot of discourse about a global South and African debt crisis, you know, kind of, and that discourse tends to sometimes be more and or less realistic in in, in terms of the the actual challenges focused by like faced by African countries. So I was wondering what you like, how you in the newsletter cover the African debt issue, and then what you've made of the kind of different kind of coverage of of this issue of of an African debt crisis um, as you kind of move across, you know, kind of different publications. Yeah, it's really interesting at the moment, Um, you know, because if you look at Europe at the moment and what's happening there, you know, Italy is is getting a lot of press coverage right now (laughs) with its um, uh, recently (laughs) concluded elections, you know, and its government debt is over 150 percent of its GDP. If you look at Greece, it is over 180 percent. So when compared to Europe, the debt crisis in Africa is actually quite small. But despite a lot of European countries kind of owing more debt than the than the recommended, I think it's 70 percent threshold of debt to GDP ratio. And they are not classified as being debt distressed when a lot of African countries are. And I think that that is something that you know, the Ghanaian president mentioned at the UN General Assembly, actually, that there really needs to be reforms in the way that Western countries continue to have this kind of hegemony and this kind of narrative over the the financial um, markets in, in terms of, you know, African countries being described as, as being in this debt crisis versus elsewhere globally. I, I'm trying to just pull up what he actually... Uh, yeah, he said that the financial markets have been set up and operate on the rules designed for the benefit of rich and powerful nations. And he was saying that, you know, there is this kind of narrative that the debt sustainability in Africa, it's essentially not sustainable, which is completely false, according um, according to him, and I would largely, I would largely agree. I think it's interesting that you know, th- there's this so-called debt trap diplomacy that's always kind of lauded about with with Chinese loans, and it's interesting that the second largest Chinese loan recipient after Angola is actually Nigeria, which doesn't really get that much media coverage, as as you mentioned at the start. 
you know, at one point, Nigeria was actually the biggest loan recipient. And I think it is because, you know, it, it doesn't really fit into this narrative of a, of a, of a debt trap diplomacy that, you know, China is picking off these very small, impoverished countries and indebting them. Nigeria is obviously, you know, Africa's biggest economy. So Nigeria has about three and a half billion dollars out of about a hundred billion dollars of total debt now. And so the three and a half billion is, is owed to China. So that's about three and a half percent, which is always funny for me when you hear the hysterical coverage in the Nigerian press about China, you know, colonizing Nigeria and sovereignty being lost and all of this. And it's just it's ridiculous. And it's it shows you, again, the dangers of not being well informed on these debt issues. We've seen that also in in Congress as well, in the Nigerian legislature, how poorly informed so many of the, legisl- the legislators are on the, the issue of the Chinese debt. One little factoid that came out this week from the folks at Development Reimagine, which not speaks to your point here, is, is about context here. So many people, when they think of the burgeoning debt issues in Africa, they associate that with China. But Development Reimagine just did some research where they sell, they said China accounts for just eight of all debt owed by African countries. And I'm quoting there, 8.7%. So the hysteria and the reality are not really aligned there at all. But it's just that that to me is very interesting. Nonetheless, let's just kind of get to brass tacks. You were very polite. You're very, uh, you know, diplomatic in what you were saying. But, you know, President Ishilema, he said that there is a premium that's paid onto African countries for the fact that they are they're being forced to pay more, even though, as you pointed out, their debt to GDP ratios are more modest than European countries and even other developing countries. Why do you think it is? Is it racism? Is it anti-poverty discrimination? Is it is it what is the reason be that Africans are paying more? for debt or or getting attacked in different ways than, say, European countries are or even other Asian countries? I actually tend to think that, um, you know, uh, Nana Kufo Addo is, is correct in his summarization that it is largely because the, the financial system, there is a, a hegemony that is geared towards Western developed governments. And within the whole financial system, there is a hierarchy that unfortunately African governments are unfairly treated within it. And how do you account for Japan, Singapore, South Korea, China, which are not Western? China is an interesting one because that always gets kind of <laughs> that's usually the the kind of well how come China has been able to kind of grow on its own and it's it's become more independent a lot of african countries people seem to forget that a lot of their debt is still owed to most of their former colonial countries. I think it is really interesting when you look at the IMF debt analysis for each country, because it it, it's, it, it gives you a real picture of who the debt is owed to and where. And um, for a lot of African countries, when you actually start to look at where they are owing their debt, the private lenders tend to be from the country that was their f- former colonial power. So I think you, you, you can't start to pick apples. You can't start to compare apples and oranges on, until you really, really start to, to look at um, where they're acquiring their debt, who they're owing their debt to, and what kind of arrangements um, they are being allowed to make on those debts. I think it's interesting that, you know, you mention Hichilema, for example, with with um, with Zambia's debt, there is a lot of talk that, you know, China is the biggest single creditor. But when you actually look at the IMF analysis of, of Zambia, a lot of its debt is owed to private Western um, lenders. 
you know, kind of in relation to, to this issue, you know, we, we see so, like, African countries are, are frequently so structurally excluded from, from the real kind of, like, circles of decision-making in, in, in for the world economy and, and world governance. And yet, at the same time, they're also really on the hook to, like, for as you say, for example, to, to Western private lenders. What kind of, what, what kind of ways do you think, and this I admit is a difficult question, but, like, what, what kind of ways do you think are there for Africa to actually increase its leverage in the international system you know kind of like how how can africa actually get more of a voice or get more you know kind of ways to kind of to to force concessions from you know kind of from from external actors that's a bit of a hard one i think you know some of the things that were being pressed for in the at the un general assembly certainly if if those were done if African countries were to get a fairer say and an, and an equal kind of a share in terms of how the IMF arranges its kind of um, a loan ratio, how uh, the UN Security Council is made up, all of those things would make a change. I really do not think that that is going to happen, though, <laughs> um, uh, sadly, unfortunately. Um, so I think it really is down to what we were talking about at the start, which is looking at ways that uh, the continent as a whole can um, um, start working together in, in terms of um, finding its own kind of financing. But let's be realistic, though, as you pointed out, too, and you acknowledge this, there isn't a whole lot of precedent for that to happen not just in Africa, but in other regions as well. South America doesn't work well regionally. Here in Southeast Asia, ASEAN's a very weak grouping. They don't work very well regionally. So there's not an enormous amount of precedent. Kobus, just to your question, I'm going to flip the question. I want to put it back onto you. But I'm going to say something very depressing, which is not surprising coming from me, but I'm going to say something very depressing, that there's no real alternative for a poor country to force the rich countries to move and to do something against their will unless that poor country acquires nuclear weapons, okay? Look at Pakistan. So are you calling for, for the general nuclearization of Africa? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I'm talking, but here's the thing. No, but here, this is the literally, but let's go through the examples. North Korea, Pakistan, even, you know, Iran has brought them to the table. My point here is that it takes extreme measures to force this. Okay, just saying we want to get together and we want a, a seat at the G20, we want a permanent membership at the Security Council, you're easy to dismiss. Okay, and so it only in the most extreme ways have poor countries been able to exert this kind of influence and to force this kind of change. So, Kobus, let me ask you the question that you asked Nos: What do you think it will take for developing countries to be able to push back and, and exert more agency over wealthy countries? Or maybe it's just not possible. Like it's, it's it's a difficult question, and it and it tends to it tends to you know as as I as I myself was thinking as I was asking the question is it it tends to force one into hypotheticals you know and you know I, I think you're right like you know something like nuclear weapons of course you know does tip the scales but it doesn't necessarily mean that 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 those countries then have an easy ride you know kind of Iran isn't having an no. easy time of it and neither is North Korea yes. by the way either you know so 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 the you know the the, the, the kind of global system does tend to 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 you know th things tend to kind of flip to pariah status you know quite quite easily like around these kind of these issues you know kind of for me i guess the like the one of the when you ask um knows about the the you know this is this issue of of asian rising powers and their kind of international clout like you know one what you know I, I was thinking that that there, there is a kind of a cynical way of, of of thinking about this where you know kind of the only way for someone to be for a country to be taken seriously by western powers is to be a, a globe changing like unprecedented kind of growth phenomenon the way that the china or japan was but if if, if you know the, the the kind of less cynical version of that is that greater greater regional coordination and greater kind of cross border coordination to 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 generate you know kind of regional growth opportunities will then start forcing 
you know, kind of simply because of, of profit-seeking motives, will start forcing some of these some of these kind of international actors to 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 rate Africa differently. Maybe. Um, the other thing that the, the other kind of form of, of leverage, there's other two forms of leverage, and both of these are, are are controversial. And and I have to admit, I don't know how that would work in either case. But the the one is that Africa, some um, you know, in some kind of way, through some kind of collective action, you know, essentially holds its all of these kind of raw raw resources that 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 drives a lot of its economy hostage you know kind of from 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 the global market that you know again i have no idea how that would work second one is is that is Never that migration happen. itself is it, particularly in relation to Europe, like migration itself is already a, a massive kind of political kind of issue. And as we've seen before, and again, I'm not advocating this, but as we've seen before, you know, kind of in the case of Cuba, for example, the use of migration as a form of, of geopolitical tool, you know, kind of is is itself on the table. So, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how African countries play with Europe, for example, in relation to migration flows. Again, I have no idea whether any of that would happen or, you know, whether about either feasible or or kind of a, you know good it would be. Um, Nos, I wonder, like picking up on that, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about the role of of migration in you know kind of in in Africa's relationship with with Europe and and particularly now that we've seen this this fascist flip in Italy. Um, how do you think that and and a, and a related one also in Sweden? Um, you know, kind of how are we going to see you know these these kind of issues play out? politically between the two we're already starting uh, to to see how that is going to to go and that's uh, there's starting to be some really unsavory i would say unsavory um deals being made in terms of you know using development money or or development deals as a way to either keep your population in the country or take in other migrants that European countries do not necessarily want. I, I think that is the way that Europe wants to do. That is definitely the route that Europe wants to go down to. I, I guess it depends on whether African governments will you know, keep accepting these types of um, um, <laughs> You know, they they say that that, that China is is doing uh, infrastructure for uh, resource barter deals. Europe is now is now doing a, a infrastructure for for migration barter deal. That that's essentially what's what what is what is happening. Um, and it, yeah, it's 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 very unsafe. We've seen that with Rwanda. There are other countries that are now being pressed for that. You know, Africa is trying to 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 kind of have a regional cooperation. I think next week um, there's actually a, a talk happening on Wednesday about how uh, countries can have some kind of regional cooperation on on migration. But I really do think that these these types of deals will 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 be forced onto them, and it's whether they accept that type of money in in terms of building their infrastructure and then keeping migration to Europe down. Let's shift the focus to politics and great power politics specifically. You wrote about in your newsletter about the new U.S. strategy for sub-Saharan Africa. You've also talked about the uh, GP, was it PGII, which is the alternative to the BRI, which is the successor to B3W, all of the acronyms, there we go. But basically, it is the, it's, the, it's the U.S. trying to get into the infrastructure game to compete with the Chinese in places like Africa and throughout the Global South. And then, of course, there is the global gateway from the European Union. So as we talked about infrastructure and we've talked about politics, what kind of faith do you have based on your reading of the political environment that either Global Gateway or PGII, what does PGII stand for again, Cobus? I've, I've just, I can't keep up with their... Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. Okay, there you go. Uh, it's so hard to keep up with all the acronyms, I apologize. Then, um, you know, do you think any of this is actually going to happen? And, and, and what was your reading of the U.S. strategy? I think that the, both the US and Europe would like to see it happen. The problem is that there isn't a whole lot of money that they have to 
put forward to counter China. If you look at what's being offered by both of those initiatives, the actual uh, financial investment is is quite is still very very low f- compared to the 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 types of annual loan deals that, that that China is offering African countries. They do not compare at all. So essentially, in short, I I don't really think that they will work if I if, if I'm. And do you get the sense that African policymakers feel the same way? Is that a widespread sentiment in in your conversations? in your reading of African politics? Yes, because um, I think the problem with US foreign policy, um, particularly towards Africa, is that it's very reactionary. It's very kind of geared towards what China or Russia is doing, but without the, the kind of financial backing to, you, you know, you've, you've got to put your money where your mouth is <laughs> type of thing. There, there isn't really the, the kind of funding to, to, to back what they want to achieve in terms of limiting uh, China's um, influence in, in Africa as they see it. And, and I think, yeah, a, a lot of African leaders are, are thinking, well, you know, if we look at the, the climate change goals and climate adaptation, the funding that's been promised, none of these things are really happening. And like you said earlier, the kind of speed with which China is able to to finance some of its um, infrastructure deals is incomparable. So, you know, we in, in both of our newsletters, we've written a lot about, about the impact of the Ukraine situation in, on, on Africa and particularly around this, the, the kind of great power pressure on, on African countries to, to choose sides around around these issues. <clears throat> and I was wondering, you know, from, from our perspective, we, we, we've looked at it a lot in terms of, of, of Chinese kind of diplomatic um, messaging and and you know the way that the way that the China has, has worked very hard to try and kind of develop this a kind of a third position or like a neutral position where where the, the the debate tends to focus a lot more on Western sanctions rather than on the on the the invasion of Ukraine itself. Um, so I was wondering what your perspective is on on how the the Ukraine crisis has, sh- has shaken out in Africa the the kind of distribution of of pro and, and anti voting. Um, or, and then particularly the abstentions um, and the way that that the the kind of the, the narration of the Ukraine crisis in the context of Africa, particularly from great powers. I think the narration has been uh, particularly odd. I mean, in, in the newsletter, one of the things that we highlighted was data from Development Reimagined, which is looking at the whole kind of grain crisis, which, is, you know, the, the narrative from from uh, Western global powers is that, you know, Ukraine and Russia provide a lot of the food for um, African countries, hence you know, they, they should be supporting um, Ukraine and um, they should be calling for an end to this to this war because, you know, they need the food. And it's a it's a really strange kind of narrative, because when you look at the data, um, Russian and Ukrainian imports is, is quite minimal. I mean, and also it's highly concentrated in in a in a few countries um the whole kind of uh, wheat crisis which which is a, a very very important global issue but wheat is not something that um a lot of african countries consume and and so there's there's that kind of weird narrative where it's it's not quite hitting the right mark and i i think that you know the U.S. has made it very clear that its focus is is now on 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 Russia, whereas before the kind of whole narrative was to was to counter China and its its export of authoritarianism in in, in Africa. Just to kind of use some of the narrative, it's now that you know uh, Russia is is a threat to to global peace and. And African governments need to to kind of reject this whole neutrality thing and and pick a side. And we've seen that in in the the new Africa policy um, released 
by Washington, Russia gets more of a consistent mention than than China, which is quite strange given Russia's engagement in Africa is is very limited compared to China. I think that the fact that China is not outright backing Russia's war and Beijing is declined request to to kind of send military equipment to Russia has made it a a lesser concern in terms of US geopolitics across Africa. And and I think that is that tells us a whole lot about the the kind of narrative that, that is that is happening right now. No, so you're absolutely right, because a couple of weeks ago, when South African President Cyril Ramaphosa went to Washington to meet with Joe Biden in the White House, there was no mention of China. It was remarkable. I mean, I looked high and low for any references to China in in the meetings. And again, if this was a year ago or two years ago, there would have been tons of background briefings on the concern about Chinese engagement in South Africa. There would have been background briefings on Chinese weapon sales. There would have been background briefings on so many different things related to China's presence in South Africa. Nothing in this one, but lots of focus on Russia. So you can see how Something has changed. Well, obviously, a big war in Ukraine has changed, but the mood in Washington is now they're not as at all as concerned about China in Africa as they are about Russia in Africa, which, as you pointed out, is somewhat odd given the fact that Russia's footprint in Africa is is quite minimal. But were you surprised as well about the South African president and the U.S. president and their meeting and that China wasn't a bigger topic of, uh, of conversation? I, I wish I could say yes, but um, no, I, I, I wasn't that surprised. You know, as I said, Joe Biden has made it very clear his primary focus now is on Putin and, and Russia. And as we heard from Ramaphosa when he later gave, gave a summary, it was South Africa's position of neutrality was discussed. He said that South Africa's position will be respected. And yeah, so the Russian aggression was, was very much the, the focus. I think it was, it was you that po- you pointed out earlier about, you know, that, that 40 foreign ministers had, had gathered in New York at the request of China to discuss global development initiatives. And, sure, and right. this wasn't given much media coverage <laughs> or attention. None, um, none, not even, I mean, it was in New York. It wasn't in Lagos. It was in New York and they couldn't bother to cover it. So, yeah, I, I think the concerns about China and Africa has been put on the back burner now, which I think you know, there's a lot of talk about um, China weakening the, the, the U.S. Um, uh, engagement and weakening U.S. position in Africa. But I I if I'm being honest, and, and this is my own uh, opinion and not a reflection of foreign policy or anything, I think that the US does that itself. <laughs> um, I think that, the, the you know, the way that Washington goes about its engagement in Africa, it kind of jars with with a lot of citizens and it jars with, with African leaders as well, in that now that the US foreign policy in terms of Washington, the, the biggest problem, if, if you read the, the Africa policy, is, is what Russia is doing right now. And Russia, when you look at its footprint in, in Africa and you look at where it's kind of targeting, it's, it's, it's quite small, it's quite um, strategic. And, and I don't necessarily think that the, the amount of uh, coverage in, in that, on, in that Washington policy compared to what China got is, is a complete mismatch to, to, to the, to the kind of influence that both have, you know, China is the greatest foreign political power in Africa right now. It, it, It is not Russia. Well, your cynicism seems like you're a very loyal listener of the China and Africa podcast. So we we do appreciate that because you are channeling us right there. So listen, everybody, if you're not subscribed to Nosmot's newsletter, you absolutely should do it. Uh, is it free to everybody or do you have to be a subscriber to Foreign Policy to get it? You don't have to be a subscriber to Foreign Policy, but you if you, you can subscribe to the to the newsletter and it's 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 free to read. 
Oh, fantastic. We'll put a link to the subscription down in the show notes so that everybody can sign up for it. Nosmat, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? So it's at Nosmutchi. So Nosmut Baramosi is a multimedia journalist, multi-talented as well, covering a wide range of topics. Again, you would think just from listening to her that she is only covering politics and geopolitics and economics. Not the case at all. Uh, art, travel, culture, politics, uh, so many cool things that she, she does. She's also on NPR, on any number of media, so listen for her. Nosmot, thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on an excellent newsletter. It was such an honor to have you on the show, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Kobus, this is exactly why I wanted Nos to come on the show, so we could cover a lot of ground. Let's kind of break down a few of the things that she said. I want to start first with this idea that China is not as important to the United States in Africa as it was a few years ago, and that everybody's focused on Russia now. That's absolutely the mood in Washington, that Russia is the the key topic of discussion. China's less so. And in fact, we saw that during the Blinken visit. We've seen it now in the new U.S. strategy for sub-Saharan Africa. China's being downplayed quite a bit. And I guess as Nos was, was saying that, it occurred to me that, is this a good thing for Africa or a bad thing for Africa? Now, I know everybody says we don't want to be stuck in the middle of a new Cold War. Everybody says that. But at the end of the day, too, China brought attention, potentially resources, and focus of the United States on Africa, and that without China as the priority, could the United States kind of divert its attention away again from the continent? So do you think it's good or bad that the U.S. is focusing less on China and Africa? I think it's kind of a mixed bag. Like, as, as, as you say, like, on the one hand, it does lessen this kind of geopolitical pressure on African African governments. On the other hand, and, you know, we, we've seen that geopolitical pressure translate into things like, you know, kind of which internet providers they work with, for example. So it has real world kind of development impacts. But, you know, so so, so that that's on the one side. On the other hand, as you say, like, you know, maybe, you know, it, it, it could divert attention. And one, one of the one of the, the liabilities, I think, of Western foreign policy in Africa is that it is so it can be a little bit ADHD sometimes you know it can be very kind of short attention span we you know we've seen for example that you know that that one of the things that that the west really loves is announcing new new initiatives they're less kind of assiduous on on kind of maintaining old initiatives you know so so be you know kind of build back better world gets announced and then after a while it's like no 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 that's over like we, we you know it's PGII now and then who knows what'll it'll be you know soon so you know so so there is this kind of like on again off again kind of like aspect of, of of Western foreign policy in in Africa and this this could lead to an off again you know kind of aspect I, I don't think in the long term that China's going to go away though like China the rise of China is such a is such a permanent kind of structural change in the in the global order that that there will be reactions to it anyway. What I would like is for is for African governments to gain more leverage. And there, I think, you know, kind of it, they, 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 in the end, they will gain more leverage if they, if they are just set an agenda and stick to it. I think rather than necessarily leaning in, leaning so much into playing off these different, these different actors against each other, because, you know, kind of, we know also that many Chinese entities and many Western entities also work together. Um, and this is particularly true for mining companies, for example, you know, so, so it's not such a clear cut situation that, that, that geopolitical polarization will necessarily lead to greater, to greater kind of leverage on, on the ground. It, it, it sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So what's much more important is for African governments to to stick to their own agenda and for that agenda to be inclusive across borders as well. I want to go back to a point that I tried to make in the beginning in our discussion about the bauxite for resource deal, which I don't think I articulated as well as I could have. And it's this question of water. And so we talked about previously about the bauxite deal that, that the Ghanaian government's done with Sinohydro that will do mining in the Atiwa Forest Reserve, which again has water reserves that environmentalists say feed about 5 million people. At the same time, there's this Galamse issue. And, and one of the points that came up in the discussion about the illegal mining, ongoing illegal mining issue in Ghana today is that so many of the rivers are polluted to the point where they're not potable anymore. So we have a situation now where analysts are warning 
And in fact, actually, it's not even analyst Cobus. We, we mentioned this in the newsletter. It's literally the head of one of the water agencies said, we may not have enough clean water in Ghana that we have to import water from other countries. No, that's shocking. And think about that. That is just incredible to think about. It's not that they don't have enough water. They don't have enough potable water because so much of it has been polluted. And, and to the point about the Chinese involvement in this, now, the Chinese government is not at all involved in the illegal mining issue, okay? That, I think, that's not a, a government thing. Where there is some accountability is on the Sinohydro deal. And this is where people want to see transparency in these contracts so they can see what are the ESG, the environmental provisions in the contracts. And this is where, again, we come up on the issue of why aren't African governments being more assertive with the Chinese to force the transparency of these contracts, which people want to know. I just, I don't understand it for the life of me well, why they won't accommodate that. Well, there's, 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 there's some separate issues, right? Kind of like one is, you know, is the, the financial transparency of, of these loan contracts is, is one set of issues and and you know kind of and and i i tend to think that that there should be radical transparency and and particularly also radical financial transparency right but the but you know kind of environmental and and other forms of like social and and, and governance you know standards those are, are are supposed to be public anyway you know kind of like these are the you know kind of most it's it's most countries it's standard that there has to be environmental impact assessments that are that also have to be not only publicly accessible but also but directly engaging with the specific publics in, in, in you know in, in, in question in, in these particular areas so you know in that case th there is a very much a, a different kind of like implementation landscape in, in uh, from country to country in Africa but even countries with quite weak regulation frequently do still have this kind of basic idea that there should be some form of environmental assessment you know done so what so so then frequently the problem is that either the we the laws are really weak or that the the that the law are okay, but they're, they're not being implemented, or they or they are being implemented, but it's only only in a kind of a pro forma way, and you know, and and there's not kind of follow through, and you know, and there again, sadly, the onus really falls on the African government because. Um, you know, as like one of the things that this that this uh, illegal mining, the Galamse scandal, ongoing scandal shows, and we should keep in mind that that the, it's not only in the first place the Chinese government isn't involved; these are Chinese migrants that are involved. But not only Chinese migrants; they're also migrants from many other African countries that are also mining gold illegally in Ghana. That's right. Who are who account for the majority, by the way? When an interagency task force raided last week. Uh, one of the major illegal mining zones, there were no Chinese. It was only Africans who were arrested. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of Nigerians and other, you know, kind of other West Africans and, and so on, people, you know, people from the region. So the, you know, so, so the, what, what you see there, and, and this is another, the, this very similar situation in the case of, of, of illegal logging that's also driven by Chinese demand, for example, is that what you actually see there in action is this kind of corrosive impact of very low-level corruption, where, where um, immigration officials, forestry officials, you know, kind of local, local kind of, um, you know, you know, administrators of different kinds. 